0: Um, well, as usual, as we turn now to God's word, we want to look at our topic for today. And um, I'm going to grab a bulletin. So turn to the back inside cover of your bulletin. Today, we're looking at um, the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is, what the Holy Spirit does. Our belief statement, we believe God is personally with us today through the Holy Spirit to help us grow, change, and serve. And let's say the memory verse together as we've been doing. So we say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And again, there's some questions there which you can use on your own or with your family to discuss this later. The kids are learning about the Holy Spirit today too in Sunday school. So if you have a Bible, open up to John 14. We'll look at that a little bit later. John 14, verses 15 to 21. If you're using the Bible and the seat back in front of you, it's page 764. So John 14. In her recent hit song, Part of Me, uh, uh, Katie Perry sings, I just want to throw my phone away and find out if anyone is really there for me. Have you ever felt like that? I think she's tapping into the fact that, that for a lot of people today, there, there's a yearning to know beneath all of our Facebook friends who are our real friends? Does anybody really care about us? Is there anyone we can really count on to be there for us when we really need them, maybe when it isn't convenient? Are we really loved? Or, or when our cell phones go dead and the internet shuts down, are we alone? And when we turn our eyes heavenward, what about God? Is God there? Does God really care about us? Is is God just some cosmic power far off and and untouchable and hard to get? Or or is God a warmly relational person, someone who we can know, we can get close to, someone who's, who's really there for us, even when our cell phone is off? Well, the Holy Spirit is the answer to those questions. Because the Holy Spirit is God with us today and the Holy Spirit is a person who loves us very much. That's what I'd like us to think about this morning. And I want to start by having us think about the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person because that matters a great deal. You know, I grew up in a Christian tradition that didn't believe that the Holy Spirit was a person. The tradition that I was raised with. Uh, believed that, that the spirit was, was a divine force or, or power, God's sort of spiritual influence in the world. And, and, and even though the, the mainstream of Christianity has always strenuously denied that view of the spirit, I think a lot of us unofficially tend to, to fall into viewing the spirit that way as an impersonal force. We, we may even find ourselves calling the spirit an it by mistake. And I can understand why. I mean, the father, we can picture as a father. And the son, we can picture as a son. But but the spirit, I mean, we don't have a face for that. We don't naturally picture a spirit as a person. Our, our pictures of spirit tend to be kind of wispy and ephemeral, you know, more like dry ice and smoke machines, um, blowing wind, burning flames, right? I mean, the the word spirit itself actually means wind or or breath. And and so our minds and our our imaginations naturally go that way when we think about the Holy Spirit. So why do Christians insist that, that the spirit is actually a person? And what difference does it make? So I'd like to take a look at those two questions. First, what evidence is there from God's word that the Holy Spirit is a person? And then second, what difference does it make? So first, the biblical evidence. Let's start by by looking at the strongest evidence that's found in this passage of John, John 14 to 16. We looked at this text last fall when we did our series on the Holy Spirit. And in that text, Jesus is comforting his disciples because um, he's about to leave them and go back to the Father. and, and, And they're really distraught about that. But he's promised that even after he goes, he won't leave them alone. He'll come to them again. And how will he come? Well, he'll come by sending us, he says, the Holy Spirit, who he calls another paraclete. Now, now what's a paraclete? Well, literally, it's, it's a transliteration from the Greek word parakletos, which means one called in alongside, literally. And English translations render it counselor, comforter, helper, advocate, And they all work, but they're all inadequate. I like J.B. Phillips' translation the best. One to stand alongside of you. That's what a paraclete is. And so what kind of paraclete, what kind of one to stand alongside of us is Jesus going to send? He says, another paraclete. As I pointed out in, in that past sermon I did last fall, there are two words for another in the Greek language in which John wrote his gospel. One is heteros, which means another of a different kind. And the other is alas, which means another of the same kind. And that's the word that John uses here. Another of the same kind. When Jesus sends the paraclete to stand alongside of his followers, he's sending another paraclete of the same kind. Another of the same kind as Jesus himself is. Because Jesus is the first paraclete. Another person, in other words just like Jesus is a person. In fact, look at John 14 now. If you want to turn there, John 14, starting in verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, another paraclete. And so much is the person of the paraclete like the person of Jesus that in the very next breath in verse 18, Jesus can say, I will not leave you as orphans, i will come to you i will send you another paraclete i will come to you do you see that what what the the when the person of the paraclete comes the person of jesus comes when the person of the paraclete is present the person of jesus is present so there is evidence that the holy spirit is a person But there's also other strong evidence all over the New Testament. When we look at the verbs that Scripture uses all over the place to talk about what this paraclete, this Holy Spirit, does when he comes. So, for example, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit speaks, is lied to, forbids, is tested, bears witness, snatches, gives orders, forbids, appoints, is resisted, sends, thinks prevents. These are all activities we normally associate with persons. In Paul's letters, we have more verbs. There, the Holy Spirit helps us pray, intercedes for us, searches our hearts, leads, speaks, teaches, predicts, groans, and can be grieved. Again, it sounds like we're talking about a person to me. So there's a real quick summary of the clearest biblical evidence. There's others. Um, But there are also some um, theological arguments based on what we know about God and the spirit from scriptures. And and if you're reading that book, Created for Community, you'll notice, or maybe you did notice, that Stan Grenz makes one such argument. So try to follow it with me. I want to give you a summary of it. Grenz points out that God is spirit. That's found in John 4.24. Jesus says that God's very essence is is not flesh, it's spirit, right? Now, isn't it interesting that Scripture uses the same word to refer to the Holy Spirit as it uses to describe God's basic essence as spirit? The same word, okay, God is spirit, and God uses the same word to talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, spirit. Spirit that suggests that whatever God's spiritual essence is must be what the spirit is. The spirit must be what God is. God is spirit. The Holy spirit is spirit is God impersonal. Then the spirit would be impersonal is God personal. Then it would seem the spirit is personal too. Are you following me? Are you following this argument more or less, whether you agree with it or not? Um, Well, then Grenz points out that scripture also teaches us in places like 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. So God's essence is also love. Now, we sometimes treat love today like an abstract concept. Love, you know, love. Um, but, But that's foreign to the Bible. In the Bible, love is an action. Love has to do with relationships. You may remember that old song, love is a verb. Love is a real thing among real people. And in the case of God, love is the quality of the relationship that God the Father and God the Son enjoy together. When the Bible says God is love, it's talking about a real father and a real son and the loving relationship that they have with one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. We looked at this when we talked about the Trinity, right? The the Scripture says that God is this amazing dance, this celebration, this delight, this this intimacy, which is the love between the Father and Son. That's what it means that God is love. Right at the heart of God, at God's very essence, is a relationship of love. So Grenz concludes, if, if God's very essence is spirit, and if God's very essence is love, then the Holy Spirit's very essence must be love too. And not just any love but the love that the Father and the Son share. Are you following that? you, You can read it in the book if you can't track with me. The Holy Spirit, in other words, is love through and through, and not an impersonal love, not an abstract love, not a conceptual love, but the most personal and relational of loves. Love in action, love in a real relationship. In fact, a love so personal, so relational, that nothing but a person could embody it. So, theologians conclude, the Holy Spirit himself is a loving person, a person from who all eternity embodies the love, the eternal love, between the Father and between the Son. That's deep and wonderful. <laughs> so, so what's the point Of all this. It's to recognize that that at the heart of God, at at God's very essence, God isn't some abstract principle. God isn't some solitary cosmic power out there somewhere beyond the quasars and and black holes and, and galaxies. No, at God's very essence, God is a community. Three persons who all love one another fully and deeply. And here's the amazing part. When God extends his love toward us, the spirit comes and plants that love within us and wraps that love around us and transports us up and in to the love which is God. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.5, 5, it was our opening reflection, I believe, God's love has been poured out into our hearts Through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is a person, an amazing, loving person. We're going to skip over that second verse for now. So the second question. Why does it matter that the Holy Spirit is a person? Well, let me give you three reasons that it matters. First, building on what I just said, it matters because... The fact that the Holy Spirit is a person enables us to appreciate and to enjoy God's love more richly. If the Spirit is merely a force or an influence, then when the Spirit comes, we might expect to feel something. We might expect to, to realize something. We might feel loved. We might realize we're loved. But experiencing a loving force is not the same thing as experiencing the love and the presence Of a real person any more than drinking a love potion is the same thing as falling in love with a real person if the Holy Spirit is a person and and the Holy Spirit is in our hearts then we have a relationship with a real person and we have the closest possible relationship which means God is there God loves us even when we throw our cell phone away. Second, if the Holy Spirit is a real person, then, then he is really grieved by our sin. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit is a, is a holy, pure person who can be grieved. When our thoughts go in, in a dark direction, when, when we think no one is looking, and we do what we, we know we shouldn't do, the Spirit is right there with us, a person in us, and he's being deeply grieved by what we're doing. Funny, there are things that we wouldn't do if we knew someone was looking. And yet we quickly forget that God's own Spirit is there watching the whole time. In his book, *The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit*, R. A. Torrey talks about being a young man and and being tempted with all of the the uh, moral temptations that young men face, even even back then. He was writing uh, or uh, talk it was a young man maybe a hundred years ago. Um, but he says from time to time he was saved from getting into trouble because when he was tempted, sometimes he would or he was tempted to go somewhere or to do something that that he knew was really wrong. Sometimes he would. Think about what it would do to the heart of his mother if she found out. His mother who loved him deeply and wanted the best for him. He knew that she would be crushed. Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought, what would my mom think if she found out? Well, Tory says, how much more should we think, how will the Holy Spirit feel when he finds out? Will he be grieved? Will his heart be pained? Because he will find out. In fact, he's right there present with us in that place at that moment because he's a person. So the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person means a great deal about our, lo- uh, the, our the love that we feel from God. It, it has to do also with the fact that we grieve him. Third, if the Holy Spirit is a person, if he's not just a power to be harnessed, And to accomplish our will, then as a divine person, he must want us to cooperate to accomplish his will. So the third lesson we have here has to do with our will versus his will. R.A.W. Torrey puts it this way. It is also of the highest importance from the practical standpoint that we decide whether the Holy Spirit is merely some mysterious and wonderful power that we in our weakness and ignorance are somehow to get a hold of and use... Or whether the Holy Spirit is a real person, infinitely holy, infinitely wise, infinitely mighty, and infinitely tender, who is to get hold of and use us. So he says we shouldn't ask, How can I get more of the Holy Spirit? but rather, How can the Holy Spirit have more of me? Big difference. So if the Holy Spirit is a person who loves us, who can be grieved, who wants to have more of us, who who wants his will to be done in our lives, then what is the Holy Spirit's will? Let's um, look at that final big question this morning. Why is the Holy Spirit with us? Why is the Holy Spirit in us? What does he want? What is his will? Let's answer it this way. The Holy Spirit's will is to draw us up into God, to draw us in into community, and to push us out into mission. First, the Holy Spirit wants to draw us up into God. And this begins when the Holy Spirit first calls us to Christ. When I was a kid, I grew up in a Christian family. Some of you did too, some of you didn't. Um, In my case, I I knew all the right answers, and and in my mind, I believed what the Bible taught. I believed in God and Jesus, but it it wasn't in my heart. It wasn't a personal thing. Personally, I wasn't ready to commit. For me, religion was an older person's thing. I didn't know anyone my age who was passionate about Jesus. That is, until I met some friends at college, and, and for them, it was personal. They were the real deal. And and it showed all all over them. They had a a vibrant relationship with Jesus, and it was infectious. It was was getting to me. And through that experience, the Holy Spirit was calling me inside. Calling me to open my heart to come to God. That's my experience. If if you are a follower of Jesus, then, then for you it probably happened differently from that. But but whatever your story is, beneath the, the surface details, the same thing is true for all of us. The Holy Spirit was at work. He was calling you to God. That's why the Apostle Paul in his letters repeatedly refers to the people he writes to as those who have been called. Those who have been called. Because anyone who follows Jesus is following Jesus because they were called to do so by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit calls. The, the Spirit also convicts us of our sins. Jesus says in John sixteen eight, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin. And I'm sure you've noticed people don't naturally think of themselves as sinners. <laughs> or, or if they do, they're, they're probably just concerned about how their sins affect them, not how their sins affect God. Uh, we still struggle with that ourselves. We, we humans don't have this natural sense of, of being sorry for offending or sinning against God. But the Spirit brings that conviction to our hearts. He, he makes us sorry. He makes us regretful for all the ways we break God's heart, for, for all the ways that we dishonor God. The Spirit convicts us. Related to this, the Spirit also opens our spiritual eyes. We call this illumination. It's like the light bulb goes on in our heads and hearts, and for some of us it's sudden, for some, of it, for some of us, the light dawns slowly. But one way or another, we realize there's a God who created us. We, we come to realize that, that this God has plans for us, that, that we've been rejecting those plans. And, and so we realize we're sorry, that, that we're, we, we want um, things to be right between us and God. And assuming we've heard the good news about Jesus coming and what Jesus has done for us, it begins to make sense. We we start to get it. We we start to read the Bible and suddenly it's like God is speaking to us on every page. That's the Spirit opening our eyes. That's illumination. And so somewhere along the way, the the Spirit regenerates us. We were discussing that in, in Sunday school a few weeks back, exactly when it happens. But it happens. The Spirit... Uh, regenerates us, that is, creates us anew. Or the way um, Jesus puts it in John 3, we're born again, we're born from above. Suddenly we're a new person with a new heart. As, As God put it in Ezekiel 36, 26, when he promised, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The spirit is drawing us up into relationship with God. We often call this process conversion. Calling us, convicting us, illuminating things for us, regenerating us. And next Sunday we'll talk more. This work of the Spirit continues as we continue in the Christian life, but we'll leave that for next week. But for now, let's move on to the second aspect of the Spirit's work with us. Not only does He draw us up into God, but at the same time, He draws us in, into relationship with a community of God's people. The main image the New Testament uses here is the image of a temple. For example, Ephesians 2.22, Paul says, you too are being built together to be a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, we're all like stones, and and God is, is building us together, making us into a temple, and, and that temple is... Um, or. Rather, in that temple, God's presence comes to dwell and and that temple is, or that presence is the Holy Spirit. We are the temple together. He is the, the Spirit dwelling in us. You know, in the Bible, first and foremost, the Spirit's presence is a community thing, not an individual thing. And that makes sense because of who the Spirit is. Remember, he's he's the Spirit of love. He's the Spirit of the relationships which are the Trinity. The Spirit is relationship personified. And I can tell you, over the years, I've had a number of relationships that have gotten stuck. They, they they've gotten hung up. Sometimes it was a a guy-girl relationship which was getting messy because she was a girl and I was a guy. Some of you've had that happen. Um, sometimes it was a conflict with a friend or maybe with my wife, Ann, which we, we just didn't know how to resolve. And, and many times I found that when I got to the end of my ability to know how to sort it out, and I, I just throw up my hands in frustration and despair and say, I don't know how we're going to fix this. I, I've turned to God for help, and, and many times God the Spirit has put his finger right on exactly what needed to be addressed. And we were able to move forward, to be reconciled. The Spirit is the master of relationships. The Holy Spirit gets relationships. Some of you are not, and you've experienced this too. And the Spirit most often shows up right where our lives and our hearts overlap with one another, right in our relationships. I think we could even say that the Holy Spirit dwells in our relationships, like God's presence dwells in a temple. The Bible also tells us that the Spirit has given each one of us one or more spiritual gifts, a, a new ability that we didn't have before, something we can contribute to, to build up the community, to, to build up the people and the relationships in that community. The Spirit gives some of us new desires to to help and serve other people, and and now we can do it with joy. We're just happy to serve. Others, he gives just the right words to encourage people who are down. They're so blessed. They're so lifted up by by the words that we say. To still others, he gives a sense of how to pray and and, and faith to pray with great expectancy that God's going to answer. To others, he gives great motivation to give generously or to to offer hospitality or to to care mercifully, and on and on it goes with the gifts he gives. The Spirit um, equips us and empowers us with spiritual gifts, and they're not for our own sake, but rather they're to build up the community. So the Spirit draws us in, in love, and, and in service to one another, into community. How does Paul put it in Ephesians 4.3? Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The Spirit is at work knitting us together. Third, the Spirit not only draws us up into God and draws us in into community, the Spirit also pushes us out like a mother bird pushing her chicks out of the nest because she knows they can fly, and that's what they're created to do. The Spirit gives us a heart to reach out. The Spirit gives us a heart for mission. And why? Because it's God's heart. It's God's heart to, to reach out, to extend himself in love to those on the outside. It's God's heart of love which, which moved him to choose a people for himself so long ago, beginning with Abraham, then with Moses in the Old Testament. It's God's heart of love which then faithfully bore with those people all those years, though they were unfaithful to him again and again. It's God's heart of love, which in the fullness of time moved him to come down personally, to walk among us, to to feel our pain, to to show us the way to live more fully, to, to then die in our place and for our sins on a cross. And it's God's heart of love who now comes to us in the Holy Spirit to to embrace us, to draw us up into God, to draw us in into loving community, but also to send that community out to extend that heart of love to others. The Spirit sends us out. It was the Spirit who first compelled John the Baptist to go out and prepare the way for Jesus. And after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Luke tells us that he returned to Galilee in the power of, Of the Spirit to go out and begin his ministry. Then, later at the end of John's Gospel, in John 20, Jesus tells his followers, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. In other words, tag, you're it now. (laughs) And what does Jesus do next? He breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. I'm sending you. Here's the Holy Spirit. We see this throughout the book of Acts, too. The coming of the Spirit again and again empowers and and propels and guides the early church into mission, spreading the gospel to new people in new places. It's easy for us in our self-centeredness to to just settle into life, to, to, um, to seek to make it comfortable for ourselves. But God's heart of love can't rest until God has reached out to all who are lost on the outside. Aren't you glad he did that for you? Yes. Yes. And the Spirit gives that heart, that same heart, to you and to me so that we are sent out on God's behalf as his hands and feet to extend his love to those that are on his heart to reach. And the Spirit not only sends us out, but also guides and equips and empowers us for the task. You know, I had one of my very first opportunities to speak publicly as a young adult when I went on my first mission trip to Romania while I was in college. And and I was pretty shy. I preferred a a quiet chat with a friend or two to just about anything else. Um, And the last thing I wanted to do was get up in front of a group of people and speak to them. But the Spirit had sent me out. (laughs) And, And the Spirit equipped me with courage, and and he empowered my words to, to preach the gospel on the streets of villages in Romania, cities in Romania, to give sermons in several Romanian churches, and the Spirit empowered me to such an extent that people started asking me if I ever thought of being a pastor. And I thought, there's no way that I could get up there and do this every Sunday morning. Little did I know the extent of the Spirit's empowerment. I had another friend on that same mission trip who, who wound up in a little Romanian village with a couple of teammates. And um, they were handing out John's gospel in Romanian. And, and they wound up through a series, a series of circumstances, winding up going or being guided into the, old, the little thatched home of, of an elderly couple in this small hillside village. And while they were there, they wound up communicating the gospel to this couple. Now, the amazing thing is that neither my friend nor his teammates spoke more than a few words of Romanian. They could say, hello, where's the bathroom? I'd like to buy some bread. That was about it. And and this couple didn't speak any English. And to this day, my friend can't explain how it happened other than that the spirit had empowered them to express the good news of God's love through Jesus Christ to an elderly couple who was on God's heart to reach. The Spirit pushes us out to share the good news. The Spirit empowers us, guides us, enables us to do it. What a person. What a person. Do you realize who you have within you? So here's my challenge for us this morning. At one point in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Frodo, the small hobbit who's the hero of the story, is given a small mithril coat of mail by his uncle Bilbo. Mithril was a a precious metal which was both strong and light. And and Frodo thanks his uncle Bilbo, and he puts on the shirt of mail under his coat, and he goes on with his journey. And sometime later, his companions are talking about Frodo's old uncle Bilbo, and um, they're talking about how wealthy Bilbo is. And um, if you know the story, of The Hobbit, you know Bilbo wound up in a dragon's lair at one point in his adventures, and and that's how he got the mithril coat as well as some other treasures. And, And one of the companions remarks that of all Uncle Bilbo's possessions, his mithril coat is by far his most valuable possession. He estimates that that shirt is greater than the value of the whole shire and everything in it. Now here's the thing. Frodo, who's um, wearing this shirt, has no idea of the value of what he possesses. I wonder if the same is true of you or me, who have the Spirit. So the challenge is to discover and to appreciate the value of the one that we have with us and in us. Let's pray. And as I'm praying, I'm going to invite the team to come up for a closing song. God, all-consuming fire, we invite you to baptize us afresh, to open the eyes of our hearts, to realize on those lonely times, maybe the cell phone's not ringing, No one seems to care to realize who it is that we have with us and in us. Do your work in us. We want to know you more. We want to know you more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen.